This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Our the federal justice minister Jody Wilson Raybo has suggested that possibly it is time to lower the blood alcohol level reading for an impaired driving conviction, which is a really interesting idea. And I I, I would love to hear from you on this one what you think of this idea. It's a really interesting idea because if we are truly, truly, truly serious about getting rid of drunk driving, this would be a start. I mean, if we're really determined to get rid of drunk driving, the way you do this is you say, any alcohol in your blood is a fail. Now, that's, that's, that's strict to the point of almost being punitive because, you know, you could have had a couple beers the night before and it may, I mean, a scintilla of something may still show up in your blood and then, oh man, that, that seems, that seems a little bit harsh. But if we're really serious, they do that for kids right now. If you're in your graduated licensing, if you're a, if you're someone and who hasn't got your full license yet and you get pulled over and you have any alcohol in your blood whatsoever, that's a problem for you. You're not allowed to do that. So if we were really serious, I mean, truly dedicated to the idea of getting drug driving and alcohol and driving completely out of the way, you simply say, if you have any in your system whatsoever, that's a crime. Well, I don't see them doing that. So this is an interesting position they're taking. It's an interesting idea they're going to, that they're talking about anyway. There's no idea, no suggestion it's going to happen yet, but an interesting idea that it would be time to lower it from 0.8 to 0.5, which probably, I'm not a doctor, I'm just reading up on this, it probably for most people, for the average person, that's probably a drink. So that would mean it would take one less drink, roughly, for you to fail a roadside test. And that's one per hour because your body deals with most people. You, you can burn off the alcohol from one drink every hour. So you're talking about if maybe three or whatever would put you over the limit, one extra. Anyway, you get the idea. It's a, it's a small change, but it would probably be the equivalent of about a drink that would be the difference. So that's interesting. It's an interesting idea. But here's the thing I want to know about this. While our federal government is contemplating whether or not we should make things much stricter or somewhat stricter on drinking and driving, which again, seems like not a horrible idea. Only those who probably have a problem would really have much of a, with alcohol would probably have a huge issue with this. But while they are thinking about maybe cracking down on drinking and driving and reducing the amount and trying to make our streets safer, they are at the same time about to open the door. We've talked about this on the show on various other levels. They're about to open the door to a whole other problem, which is basically the same thing, which they have no answer for yet. And that is we are, if the promises, if the campaign promises are to be believed, we are less than a year away from the legalization of marijuana in this country. And at this point, they don't have a simple, reliable way to check people who are driving their cars who may be stoned. So here we're saying we have to make the roads safer by reducing alcohol, or at least they're talking about this. And yet at the same time, next July 1st or before, again, if the federal liberals are to be taken at their word, we will allow 
marijuana to be legalized. Oh, but we're going to have some sort of roadside test to do this, right? Well, there is a roadside test to do this. Story from earlier this year explained there is a roadside test to do this, but it's very inaccurate right now. In order for you to have a roadside test, to have a test for marijuana in your system that could be holding up in court, it's a 12-step procedure that has to be done by specially qualified drug, drug recognition examiners. So you can't just have a ride test and find this out. Now, you could take them and you could have suspicions, perhaps, that someone was was had, had smoked dope. But we don't know, first of all, we don't know exactly how much dope would make it difficult for you to drive properly. Maybe some experts do, but it's not, it's not being talked about that there is a, you know, is it one joint? Is it half a joint? Is it a certain type of marijuana? Is it this and that and the other. We don't know exactly. So we're about to throw open the floodgates to something that we don't have full protection for yet by the sounds of it. We don't have all these officers that are trained or ready to deal with a new drug that we're putting into the market or legalizing into the market, but we've decided that the current drug that we have in the market, it's really important for the safety of the public that we consider cracking down on that, which is halfway right. The cracking down part is right. That seems to make a lot of sense. As a discussion point, that's something that I think most people could be open to the idea about. Let's let's make it so that less alcohol gets you a positive test to make the roads safer. Even though there's one other point to this, which I never even mentioned, and that is I'm of the opinion, and I could be completely wrong on this one, but it is my opinion alone, that most people who get caught drunk driving, most people, it's not the first time. I really don't believe that most people who get pulled over, some, but I believe that most people who get pulled over, this is something they would do more than just once in a while. There's the odd one at Christmas time or New Year's or something for sure. But my point is, if we were to reduce the amount that it would take to get someone a positive test, I'm still not sure how much that would lower the incidence of drinking and driving. Because I believe that there is a fair number of people that this is possibly habitual. And if you lower it, yeah, you might get them a conviction. You might, but maybe not. But if we're so determined that we are going to make this better, that we're going to make the streets safer, that we are going to crack down and that we are going to take the people off the road who may be affected by alcohol as they're driving, how are we then not seeming to have a similar type thing at the other end with a new drug, as I say, with marijuana, when we bring it on. Now, we it, this is not a discussion about legalizing marijuana per se. We all have our opinions on that. But to this point, everything that I've seen, everyone I've talked to about this, and there will be those who will disagree, but would say, no, at this point, we don't really have the answer for roadside testing with pot. We just, we don't have that answer. There's going to be, there's different levels in your blood and all those kind of things, but it's not a simple thing. A roadside breath test is at this point pretty simple. 
I've never had to take one actually. I've been stopped by ride programs, but I've I don't drink and drive. I've never actually had booze in my system when I've been pulled over by a ride program. So I've never had to take a breath test, but everything we've heard, you've seen, look, all you had to do was watch that episode of WKRP a few years ago with Dr. Johnny Fever. You know how the roadside test works. Not very complicated. That kind of thing. If we're going to crack down on boozing driving, we should be very ready to be cracking down just as hard and making every effort to make sure that by the time we legalize marijuana, that that, the ability to deal with that is every bit as strong. Seems to me that there we have laws in place. We have things right now for alcohol. Not that it shouldn't be fixed, not that it shouldn't be toughened, but our efforts, if we are bound and determined, if, if we as a country and as a government are bound and determined that we are bringing marijuana, legal marijuana into play less than a year from now, our efforts should not be on tweaking the alcohol side of things. It should be making sure that we have a system, a proper system, a reliable system in play to crack down on those who would drive stoned. I'm still waiting. What I'm going to find very interesting, and I don't know if this will happen, but I suspect it might. If there is not, by the time the law comes into place, a lockdown, absolutely reliable system, to test for marijuana use in drivers. The first time there is a fatal accident, heaven forbid, but it will happen because, it I mean, accidents happen. The first time there is a fatal car accident in which the person who was driving is found to have even a hint of marijuana in their system, the federal government will be sued. Unless... Unless by the time it's legalized, there is something put in place that is absolutely available and accurate and um, available all over the country to try and prevent this. Because the federal government can't possibly be careless enough to put a new, to allow a new drug to be legalized without having some way to check for it on the roads. Can they? Surely they can't. I trust that they can't. I hope that they can't. It's an interesting idea to lower it. I'm, I'm, I have no issue. I have no issue with lowering the blood alcohol level for an impaired conviction. I have none. Somebody might. I have none. I just hope, I just trust that the same effort, the same discussion is going into other things as well. Because I would hate to think that we are making the road safer for one type of drug user, recreational, legal drug user, and throwing open the floodgates for others, somehow thinking that it's not the same thing. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I assume you've been paying attention to what's been going on the last few days. You've been listening to the news, reading the paper, watching TV, and you've heard a few stories pop up that seem to be following a certain theme. First of all, there was WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, demanding that Russia accept the results of a finding of a report which accused its officials of overseeing a mass doping cover-up. Then we had yesterday the 10th anniversary Anniversary sounds so joyous. I'm not sure it was joyous, but the 10th anniversary of Barry Bonds passing Hank Aaron to become the Major League Baseball's all-time 
home run king. And when I say not joyous, because most people, many people, most people, I'm not sure, believe that Barry Bonds had some help in the form of the clear or the cream or whatever it was. There was other stuff. And then on the weekend, Usain Bolt, his final race at the World Track and Field Championships in London, his final race ever before going off into retirement. It's not that he lost because he finished third. But it's who he lost to. He lost to Justin Gatlin, who was a two-time failed doper. He had twice been banned for doping violations. And then in the grand finale, the big race, when everyone's watching, this is the guy who beats Usain Bolt and really kind of put a, a stink, it seems, on the whole thing. Dick Pound is a one-time vice president of the IOC. Uh, He was the first president of the World Anti-Doping Agency, and he has been, over the years, one of, if not the loudest and most passionate voices against doping and drugs in sports. He joins you now. Mr. Pound, thanks for doing this tonight. Uh, As I say, you, you have been screaming from the mountaintops for I don't know how long about the problems of drug in sports, and I'm wondering if it ever surprises you that after all these years that we're still dealing with this stuff, and I don't know if we're any further ahead. Well, we're somewhat further ahead. I, you know, it, it's one of these uh, Winston Churchill things, you know, it's not the end, it's not even uh, the beginning of the end, but it may be the end of the beginning. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it does seem that, that it, I would have thought, and maybe it's because we're Canadian, but when Ben Johnson got busted and we saw a world superstar basically get destroyed, I thought that a number of athletes, maybe most athletes, would be spooked by that. And then didn't seem to happen. And then baseball had its drug thing with McGuire and Sosa and all those guys. And I thought, okay, here's the one where everyone's going to be spooked. And on and on. It, it, maybe there seems to be a moment or two after one of these big stories happens, but it never seems to take. It, it, it certainly didn't with Ben. I mean, I like you, I sort of hope, well, all right, uh, you know, we've, we, we've shown that uh, no matter who you are and no matter how good your record is and no matter how important your sport, if you cheat, you're toast. And uh, we thought that might be a good deterrent, but I think all that ended up showing was that the IOC was prepared to do that, but all the other sports were not. And it wasn't until 10 years later in a European event, because you know, a lot of these sport organizations were over there in the, in the Festina scandal in 1998, that all of a sudden they said, ooh, you know, French police are arresting cycling team officials for having all these doping products. Uh, if it could happen in the Tour de France, it maybe could happen to me, and therefore we better pay some attention to it. And that's when that's what led to the uh, formation of the World Anti-Doping Agency. So who is, and I want to get to a number of things here, but who, who is responsible in your mind? I mean, ultimately, obviously, the athlete is responsible. It's them who's putting the stuff into their body. But is it just the athletes who are responsible for the fact that this continues on? Or are sporting agencies and, and are there more than just the athletes who maybe should have some blame cast at them in this? Oh, for sure. For sure. I, I would say in most cases it's uh, north of 50% somebody else's uh, pressure that has led to this coaches, officials, maybe government officials, as we've seen from mm. Russia. So it's uh, the athletes are the ones that, that get caught, and, and uh, a lot of the, the masterminds get away with it. And why then, certainly not with the government, well, first of all, before I get to that, do you believe still that governing bodies today, even now, are covering sometimes for their athletes? Oh, for sure. Still? For sure. Because there were always rumors about that. No, they... Yeah. 
if you if you're the president of an international sports federation, your your prime directive uh, is to get reelected, and you don't get reelected if you start to turn over some of the stones that uh, uh, that, that uh, are hiding some stuff. And so, and how far back does that go? Forever? Well, I, I, I guess it goes back to when they first had the rules about uh, no drug use. You know. I'm old enough that, uh, that when I, you know, I was at the Olympics in 1960, that there were no rules. It, you know, you could take whatever you wanted. Uh, it may have been crazy. It may have been dangerous. But, but there was no sport rule that said you can't do that. So it wasn't until mm, 1968 when we started testing at the Olympics that all of a sudden this, all this stuff became clandestine. And d- over the years, and I, you probably, I mean, I, I'm not going to ask you to say names because you probably can't. Um, but I'm sure you've heard things in your position. Would we be shocked by some of the names that you've heard rumors of that have been tested that their governing, their agencies or their overseeing bodies have covered for them? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, how is it that Lance Armstrong is tested hundreds of times, uh, never has a positive test, uh, and then admits that he was doping all along from the very start of his, his cycling career? So uh, I, I think... If you don't want to find something, you can find a way not to find something. But then when someone does get caught, and here, here's where a lot of people have the biggest issues, whether it's with baseball, whether it's with cycling, whether it's with track, when someone does get caught, it never seems to a lot of people that the penalties are sufficient enough to satisfy, whether it's a bloodlust or whatever else. But, you know, if and Sebastian Coe, the head of the IAAF, actually took a bit of a shot at water um, talking about Justin Gatlin, saying, listen, if they had stiffer penalties, this guy could have been banned for life the first time around. Now, whether it's Wada's fault or someone else, why can't these suspensions be made stiffer enough that by the time you, okay, you you do it once and shame on you, you get caught. But the second time, that's it, you're out for life. Why can we never get to that point? You know, the real reason is the the legal profession and and the laws. We've tried. I mean, there's no Olympic athlete on the face of the planet that that wouldn't agree with exactly what you've said. Uh, But you can't do that because uh, the courts... Uh, you know, the civil courts uh, say, I'm sorry, that's not proportionate to the uh, degree of the offense, and, and therefore it's, uh, it's an illegal uh, punishment. So we've been gradually working up. You know, when, when we started WADA, uh, the basic uh, default penalty was, was two years. And, you know, it wasn't until we could demonstrate that a, a good steroid program would last you four or five years mm. that people said, oh, okay, all right, then we can, you know, we can envision a, f- a four-year uh, first offense penalty, and then it, it goes up from there. But uh, it, it'll take a while to get there because the, the, the civil courts will not let us do it. If it were a sport decision, they'd be gone in a, in a second. Because even this weekend, after the Justin Gatlin story, I was reading that there were experts saying that the effects of whatever you know he's taking, or if someone was taking some stuff, even if you have a ban for a period of time, it can last for years. The the positive effects, absolutely, not just while the stuff is in your system. Yeah, no, a good a good steroid program will last you four or five years, even after you've stopped. So it, no, no, it's 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 a it's a serious problem, and and it takes a fair amount of social education to get you know get people up to the point of saying, all right, well, that is proportionate to the uh, the damage that's caused or the advantage that you get. 
we and you talk about the athletes would not compl- the clean athletes would not complain about this. And I, I think back uh, here in Hamilton, uh, Joanne Millar, who competed in uh, at least a couple Olympic games and a number of Commonwealth and Pan Am games, she doesn't have an Olympic medal today. Although a woman who beat her finished first in her last Olympics was later found out to be a doper. Joanne should probably have a medal at this point. Um, I, I think of Donovan Bailey, who does have medals, but I, who I believe, and Mr. Pound, you tell me if you agree or disagree, I think he never got the due that he should have got as the runner that he was because many Canadians were waiting for the positive test. In the wake of Ben Johnson, we were so nervous about what might happen here that Donovan never quite got the the regard if someone was yeah the the, the tainted athlete or the, not the tainted the the one who takes the stuff who might sue to prevent a long ban you're right the civil courts of course might protect them would it take an athlete who lost to a tainted athlete in the courts to change that could they go to the court could joanne millar or someone of their day go and say listen I, i'm suing because that should be my medal yeah you i mean you could take that action but how do you prove it that's that's the difficulty. I mean, you you got to if if you take the action, you have a you have to prove on a balance of probabilities that, that the defendant uh, cheated, and you don't have I mean you don't have access to uh, the kind of information that uh, leads to that. You need to you need to find a smoking gun, which is a a positive test somewhere or an admission or somebody rats them out uh, like. Uh, uh, that's happened that happened with uh, Armstrong. For mm. Are you surprised at all, or did you expect the result? Because uh, for people who weren't watching, when Justin Gatlin beat Usain Bolt, and then when he got his medal, there was an awful lot of booing in that stadium. Uh, did that surprise you, or was that kind of what you thought might happen? I, I was afraid that would happen. I was afraid, A, that, that, that uh, you know, Usain, I think, wanted to retire after that third gold medal in, in Rio, and his sponsors persuaded him to stay for another year and, and you know it was like that movie a bridge too far mm. and so he didn't have the motivation and, and he's a big guy now and and um, he's a little bit like carl lewis who didn't start fast but because he was so tall he has these huge strides at the end that he comes comes through but he you know he just he can't start fast enough like like the kid who came second was almost like ben johnson he was out of the blocks and two meters ahead before you saying that it's been taking a step. Here's the tricky part, though, about this, because if, and it's hypothetical, if Justin Gatlin had been English, had been British, and won in Britain, even with the positive tests, and I'm not trying to besmirch the British people, I'm saying regardless of where it was, put the, if it was a home country athlete, wherever the race was, would there have been the same result? Because it seems that part of the problem we have with doping a lot of the time is we're willing to overlook our own people as long as they are our guy or our girl. Yeah, it's, it's like the the James Bond guy. You know, he's he's psychotic, but he's our psychotic. <laughs> <laughs> well, Barry Bonds. I mean, in San Francisco, Barry Bonds is a legend. Everywhere else, he's a cheater. Yeah. Well, I always said that. You know, you mentioned him and Hank Aaron. I've I've always said Hank Aaron has a record. Barry Bonds has a number. Hmm. Is this, are we, are we uniquely sensitive to this because of the Dublin Inquiry and because of Ben Johnson? You travel the world. Do, do, do other countries have the same sensibilities about steroids and drugs and busts and all this kind of stuff that we do? Uh, probably not. Probably not. There, I mean, there, there are different cultures, and in some cultures, uh, 
you do what you have to do to survive, uh, which may, means in sport uh, win. So I, I think countries where there are traditions of, of doping, like the, the, you know, the Soviet Union and, and its children as it, as it dismantled, and East Germany and so on, are, are uh, they're pretty committed to uh, whatever program it takes. But, 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 you know, you find it in Spain, you find it in Kenya, Ethiopia. It, I mean, there are a lot of, a lot of countries where they don't have the same ethics and they don't have the same ability to uh, to control what their athletes are doing. Just before I let you go, because you are such a recognizable face standing against doping in sports, when you go around to various athletic competitions and the athletes recognize you, do you get a very warm welcome from the athletes or do you get a chilly reception? And, and I, I mean, it may be a silly question to ask, but I wonder if they look at you as... And, and people who work in the same industry like you as someone who is trying to save sports or do they look at you suspiciously like you're trying to catch something? Well, I think it depends on what side of the fence you're, uh, you're on. <laughs> of course. I mean, I, you know, in some places where I go, I can empty a room. <laughs> and and uh, in others, they say, oh, thank God somebody's doing something. And, and you know, you're, you're one of the few people that yada, yada, yada. Uh, so... Which do you hear more of, though, when you go around? When I go around, uh, more than thank you for trying. You know, we know we don't have it perfectly yet, but at least somebody's out there uh, making sure that uh, people are aware of this, and uh, you know, someday we'll get it right. Well, I, I, that's a relief anyway, that at least, as you say, the athletes are hoping for that. Uh, Dick Pound, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Anytime. Nice to chat. It is, um, I mean, there's, there's the guy who is arguably the greatest evangelist to get drugs out of sports. For years has been doing it. And you can agree or disagree with his methods, although I don't know what's to disagree with. He's very outspoken. That's, there's no question about that. Go and, if you have followed the words of Dick Pound over the years, there's not a lot of minced words in, in a lot of these things. Some people blanch at that. But but the, the, the issue we have here is that we are now years on. Ben Johnson, Ben Johnson was busted in 1988. We are coming up on the 30th anniversary of Ben Johnson being busted. 30th anniversary. And I would have believed, if you had wagered with me back then, that enough athletes would have been spooked when they saw not only one of the biggest stars in the world. This was not, because we, we always hear that, well, federations will sacrifice their, will, will give up their sacrificial lamb to appease the, the people. We know there's doping in sports, so we'll give up Joe Blow. He's a nobody. But this was one of the biggest stars in sports. This was one of the biggest stars. Well, he certainly was arguably with Wayne Gretzky back in the late 80s. He and Wayne Gretzky were the two biggest Canadian athletic stars, bar none. There was nobody bigger than Wayne Gretzky, but there was, on a 1A, there was Ben Johnson. And in fact, if you went around the world, outside the Canadian borders... Ben Johnson was a far bigger star than Wayne Gretzky was back then. More people, if you traveled the world, would have known who Ben Johnson was than Wayne Gretzky. This was one of the biggest stars in the world. We forget that almost 30 years later, how huge Ben Johnson was. And I don't just mean physically, 
Ben Johnson was a world celebrity. And on top of that, outside the United States, there were not a ton of people that loved Carl Lewis. Carl Lewis was a a figure that a lot of people did not have a lot of time for. So to have a, a, a guy who would come along and beat Carl Lewis and shut his mouth, a lot of people thought, well, you know, even if Ben Johnson was taking something, we're not, you know, no one's ever going to find out. Ben Johnson got exposed. Ben Johnson got caught. Ben Johnson, his life was ruined. His life was ruined. You'll remember he made his comeback here in Hamilton at then Cops Coliseum in the Hamilton Spectator Indoor Games. Came second in that race in the middle of a huge blizzard and then had another positive test and he was essentially done. But I really believed if you had wagered me back in 1988, 89, after the Dubbin Inquiry happened, which was an absolute bloodletting for Canadian sports, all the top Canadian track athletes just having their dirty laundry aired for the world while the rest of the world honestly was snickering and tittering because they didn't have to have ever, look, Canadians, oh, you Canadians are cheaters. We don't do that stuff. Look at how bad you Canadians are. Oh, well, I thought that at that point that a lot of athletes around the world, because Ben Johnson, again, was not just a Canadian figure. I, they, there were people, believe it, there were people around the world who were watching this. I thought that a lot of athletes would say, Oof, if they can bust Ben Johnson, if they can have Ben Johnson's career and life swirl down the crapper, I could, that could happen to me too. If they can bust one of the most famous, successful draws, because Ben Johnson sold tickets. If they can bust and ruin one of the biggest draws in our sport, me as a shot putter, me as a discus thrower, me as a high jumper, me as a 10,000 meter runner, whatever it was. Man, I, 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 there'd be no problem with getting rid of me. I thought that would deter people. Hmm. And then when Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa came along, 1988, 1998, pardon me, exactly, ironically enough, a decade after Ben Johnson got busted. Again, there were, in the summer of 1998 and around that time, there were not two bigger stars on the North American sports scene than Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. They saved baseball. Baseball had had a strike in 1994. The sport was in bad shape, and along comes Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, and suddenly the stadiums are jammed, and there's commercials for Chicks Dig the Long Ball, and everybody's watching baseball again. And look at that. Mark McGuire gets shown to be a guy using Androstenedione and Sammy Sosa, whatever. I thought, oh man, someone's going to learn some lessons here. There are going to be people who are getting far, far, far away from stuff. Hmm. Apparently not. We are, the money in sports, whatever else, there are always going to be people who will use this stuff. Despite the fact and here's the, here's the difficult part about this. Here's the part about this that you just can't get around. You get, a, you get someone like Justin Gatlin, and yeah, the, there's a lot of stuff online today, a lot of stories written, a lot of columns, a lot of commentary, that Justin Gatlin basically ruined the World Track and Field Championships. 
that by beating Usain Bolt, it wasn't that he beat Usain Bolt. Usain Bolt is allowed to be beaten. It's that a two-time drug cheat was allowed back into the sport and beat him. And it wasn't just the fans and it wasn't just the commentators. You know who else, as Dick Pound said, you know who else was upset about this and is upset about this? The athletes that are trying to perform clean. The athletes that are trying to not take the stuff and not willing to take the stuff and saying, I'm going to do my best running without cheating. They're the ones who are burned by this because they can't compete. And it's totally unfair, which is the whole problem of drugs in sports. It's totally unfair to those who would compete properly. But you know what? If I'm still doing this show 10 years from now, we're going to be talking about this again because some other athlete is going to do it because he or she believes they can get away with it. And why not? It's worth millions to them. I'll take my chances. That's how it works. That's how it's always going to work. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Okay, I got to take a deep breath here because I'm going to tell you a story that I thought when I first heard this must be a joke, in the words of Donald Trump, it must be fake news. This has to be fake news. There is no possible way that what I'm going to tell you could not be fake news. That's what I thought when I first saw this. And then I saw that the Daily Mail online in England is writing about it, and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, reliable media sources are writing about this and have done interviews on this. So my belief that this was so ridiculous that it had to be fake. Oh, and then, by the way, the person about whom this story, he's a professor, I went on to the university's website, found his page. He is a legitimate professor. He does, I I believe now that this story is true. I could still be wrong, but I believe, having checked this, because I don't want to lead you astray, I believe this story is true which is the most which makes this so stunning. If this had been fake, it's not. Here it is. A professor at the University of Georgia put on his syllabus online when you were signing up for his course that you in order because he was concerned that students were sometimes too stressed out from university, that university was a very stressful place to be. As part of a so-called stress reduction policy, if you as a student were unhappy with the grade given to you by the professor, you could simply send him an email with the grade you believed you had earned or should have been able to have, and with no questions asked, that is your grade. He gives you a C, mm, you know what, no, no, I think I earned an A+. Plus. Boom, A+, plus is your grade. That's, that's what this was about. Emotional reactions to stressful situations can have profound consequences for all involved, the professor wrote at the University of Georgia. If you feel unduly stressed by a grade for any accessible material or the overall course, you can email the instructor indicating what grade you think is appropriate and it will be changed. No explanation is required. Further, it go, it get, oh, it gets better. Believe me, it gets better. I mean, if, if getting an A+, plus just because you say you deserve an A+, plus isn't enough. Also, there will be, all tests are open book and notes, and you can have your laptop there. So basically, everything is right in front of you. And, and here's the kicker to the whole thing. 
in class, when you have given a presentation, only, only positive feedback can be given. The only comments that can be directed at you for what you did in that class can be positive. We, we, there will be no critical analysis. There will be no negative comments. Anything that is said in class about your work will be positive and you can choose what grade you want. This is university. This is not kindergarten. This is not, I don't know what. This is university. Where have, how have we reached a point? Now, I know this is not commonplace. This doesn't happen at McMaster, at least to the best of my knowledge. Oh, heaven help us if this happens at McMaster. If, if you're a McMaster student or prof and this exists at McMaster, please let me know. But I cannot believe, I, I find it impossible to believe that we have any professor up here, professor, who will say, you choose whatever grade you want and I give you that. And there will be no harsh or even slightly critical comments about your work. Isn't that exactly what university is supposed to be for? I'm looking at this and I'm thinking to myself, you know, we've talked and other places have talked about this too, that, and I don't want to be dumping it on millennials, but we've talked that the millennial generation, the common commentary about the millennial generation is that they have been told from their whole life you get a participation trophy. You don't have to win anything. You get a trophy. You, we're not going to say anything negative about you. It's, everyone gets the same. This is not, now I want to make it clear, this is not a problem of the millennials. Sometimes we say, well, the millennials are, are a bunch of snowflakes. No, 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 no. This is not, they didn't cause this problem. Their parents and the people who were coaching and teaching and overseeing them caused this problem. How we decided that an entire generation should not be allowed to face any kind of criticism, any kind of negative commentary, any kind, should never have to deal with losing and learn what it means to win and to lose, should never have to have any kind of sense of who's first or who's second. We're not going to keep score. Everyone's the same. How we decided this, I, I wasn't at that meeting. I don't know when this happened, but it's not the millennials' fault. We blame the millennials. It's not their fault. This is what was done to them. And now we have professors who are exacerbating this by saying, oh, and by the way, now that you've been able or have gone through a bunch of your life being told, yeah, you're fine exactly as you are. Don't change anything. You don't lose. We don't keep score here. Now that we've got a generation of people who have been told this by maybe well-minded but completely misguided adults older than them, we're now having them show up at university and professors are saying the same thing. How in the world does a person who goes to a university and is told you can choose whatever grade you want, and we will not correct you, we will not criticize you, we will not clarify anything, we will only offer you positive feedback. How does that person survive in life? How does that person survive in life? Love to hear your thoughts on this. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. How did we get to this point? Maybe Maybe that's a rhetorical question. Maybe I just answered it, how we got to this point. But I'm reading these stories, and it's, it's, it's stunning to me. It is absolutely stunning to me that we have 
university professor, a professor, hopefully it's only one so far, but that someone who works for a university and teaches kids who have gotten into university that you can choose whatever you want. How do these kids... And again, I I want to make clear, because I think this is a misguided notion, that we have so many people saying millennials are whatever. It's not the millennials. We are the ones at fault here. We trained them this way. We told them that this is the way things were. I don't know why we did it. I can't explain why we did it, but we did it. And so it's not, they're not at fault for having been told all their lives that there's no such thing as winning and losing and that you can't say anything negative. It's not their fault that when a teacher would say something negative to them in class or to correct their behavior, that mom and dad would race down to the school and chew out the teacher. That's not their fault. They're only going by, they're only living the way that they've been taught, which unfortunately we did in a lot of ways, a wrong job in some in, in, of doing it. So now we've got professors who are saying same thing. Now, I want to be clear. University of Georgia, this is from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution at 1.42 p.m. today. Atlanta Journal-Constitution says, yep, uh, University of Georgia knows about this, and I guess nothing had been said beforehand. But once this became a news story, the university said, no, 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 we're not going to allow this. Of course, nothing had been denied or nothing had been, the, the professor had been allowed, apparently. Nothing had been taken away from the website until it became a really embarrassing news story for the university. But now, no, we're not going to allow that to happen. We have too much respect here and, and high standards. Okay, whatever. Maybe they do. I don't know. But somehow, a professor at a university felt comfortable enough to say that you could choose whatever grade you want. I would have loved that. Could you imagine? I would have never gone to class and I would have graduated magna cum laude with A plus in every single course. I would have walked into every place that I was going to apply for a job and said, I had a perfect score. I got perfect in university. Of course, I don't know anything, but I got perfect. This is, this is one of the more remarkable stories that I've seen. And, and honestly, while this is unique, we know that university campuses, many of them, some of them in recent years have fallen terribly victim to this kind of thing, if not exactly this kind of thing. You will recall that the night or the day or two after Donald Trump got elected, that university campuses in the States, university campuses, respected places of higher learning, had rooms set aside for crayon drawing and dog petting so that the students who were terribly upset and didn't know how to deal with losing because their candidate didn't win could go in and have a soft, quiet place to deal with their overwrought emotions. The true stories. University of Michigan was one of them where they had, they brought in dogs where you like service petting dogs where you could go into a quiet room and just sit there and cuddle with a puppy 
if you were unable to deal with the emotions of having your candidate lose the election. So this is not happening in a vacuum, but wow, wow. Choose your own grade. And do you think this will be the last time we hear about this? I mean, maybe from this professor, because this guy now got all the attention. So he's probably not going to be able to do this. But you don't think, you don't think that we're going to have others like this? Now, and I don't even, some people, I heard this today. Some people said, well, this is just a professor being lazy. Uh, 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 uh. I don't believe that this is just a professor being lazy and not wanting to teach the class. Because he's going to go there and he's going to teach the class. This is absolutely a case of probably, if anything, if anything, this professor probably got so sick and tired of whiny, crying students coming to him saying, I didn't get the grade I deserved, that he finally said, fine, whatever, just write down the grade you want. But again, I got to go back. This is not the fault of the students. This is not the fault of the millennial generation that gets dumped on by older folks. This is not their fault. This is not their fault. If you're a 20, 21, 22, 23, whatever, I don't know what age millennials go up to. This is not the fault of them. This is the fault of the people who told them for their entire life that losing was unacceptable, that you were not allowed. My child cannot be on a losing team. Well, how do we prevent that? We're not going to keep score. In soccer, we're not going to keep score. Hockey, we're not going to keep score. That way, everyone gets a trophy at the end of the tournament or at the end of the game, and we don't know who won or lost. Well, you want to know something? Here's the secret part that some people didn't figure out. Even if the adults tell the kids that score is not being kept, the kids know who won the game. Every kid knows. If you were to have a schoolyard soccer game with no adults present. Or when I was a kid, we'd play football at recess. Do you honestly think that the kids didn't know who won? Of course the kids know who won. But what happens then is the kids already know who won, but now mom and dad come in and say, oh, well, winning and losing really doesn't matter. Yes, it does matter. Not to the, not, it's not the only thing. We're not talking about Vince Lombardi, it's not winning isn't the only thing, isn't everything, it's the only thing. We're not talking about that. As a kid, there's more to it than just winning or losing, but winning and losing is part of it. It matters. But we, we, not the kids, we trained our kids. I hope I didn't do it with mine, but probably. But we, our generation, trained our kids that they should expect that they never lose, that they get what they want, that they can be whatever they want to be, they can do whatever, and no one's going to tell them otherwise. You can go and take courses at university in ridiculous humanities stuff and expect to walk out with a $100,000 a year job because you can be whatever you want to be. Well, now you've got a professor who's saying not only that, but he's saying you can literally be whatever you want. You want to be an A-plus student? There you go. It's yours. Just just send me a nice email. If you could put a happy face emoji on the end of it, that would be great too, just to make me feel good. This is this to me is absolutely one of the most outrageously, hilariously, pathetically sad, I don't know what other adverbs I can throw in, stories I've ever read. I was I was a horrible high school student 
as far as a student goes. I was not good at high school. I got to university and I found a, a course that I loved. And I worked hard when I got to university and I put in a lot of hours. Could you imagine if you were one of those people who had put in all kinds of time in university, and I did, if suddenly the person next to you who never did anything could simply send a note to the professor and say, yeah, you know what? I deserve a better mark than him. I get an A+. Plus. How does that? How does that even begin to? This is. This is just weird and sad and indicative of something, and I'm not entirely sure what it's indicative of, but it's indicative of something or other, something that I hope we don't see again, but I kind of fear we will. Uh, you can find this story, by the way, all over the place. Uh, just type in Georgia professor if you want to read all the details. In fact, if you want to see the syllabus itself. You can find that online, too. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.